CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria offers our listeners three types of programming. Music, spoken word, and multicultural. Our multicultural programming is in a third language and features news, events, and music catering to cultural communities in Victoria and beyond. Visit cfuv.ca and click on our program schedule to hear our latest episodes. CFUV is always accepting submissions from nonprofit organizations for our public service announcement reel. Visit our website to see our PSA submission guidelines at cfuv.ca. Hi, I'm talking to Andrew Cartmel. Something that crossed my mind uh, when I was thinking about what I'd ask you, Andrew, is have you ever thought much about how lucky you are, how uh, maybe gifted you are to combine two of your great loves, music and writing? There's a whole variety of other things, but uh, you've made a fairly, very successful career, I think, out of these two passions. Being a glass half empty kind of guy, I would respond to that by saying that it's a shame that I'm not, although I have a deep love of music and I'm a, an accomplished prose writer, I can't read music and I can't play any instruments. So I think that that would be uh, even more of a blessing if I was capable in that, in that regard. I think of myself as a, a music end user. Yes, uh, I know exactly what you mean by that. I'm curious of, about how this sort of process uh, developed from uh, a degree in computers, then editing a hi-fi magazine, Doctor Who, stand-up comedy, and uh, the Vinyl Detective series. Was it a planned route? There's a saying in warfare that no plan survives contact with the enemy, and none of my plans survive much contact with real life. So you mentioned, oh, like, uh, the, the computer thing. I took a degree in computer science purely as a fallback in case I didn't become a successful writer, not realizing that the problem is if your heart's not in it, what's the point? Because I got my degree in computer science, had a pretty good job in computer science, but I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, no disrespect to anybody who loves it, but, but I didn't love that. I loved something else, which was writing, you know, the creative stuff. And uh, I, lo I was lucky enough to get hired, headhunted from my job at a very good computer firm in Cambridge to become the script editor of a cult British TV show called Doctor Who. Now, they didn't just pull my name out of a hat. I've been writing TV scripts for years in an attempt to break in to writing uh, for television. And, and even that was a fallback option because my starting point was I wanted to be a novelist. That's what I always wanted to be. And I thought in my immense innocence, I thought writing scripts for television would be an easy way of supporting myself while breaking through as a novelist. Okay, Andrew, um, your major musical interest, your dominant musical interest, I think, is uh, jazz. Now, how did that evolve? How did a young guy growing up in Britain in the middle of kind of uh, the rock and punk and all that great music uh, evolve into a jazz man? Well, my earliest uh, mu musical memories, uh, when I started to listen to my own stuff as opposed to just playing records that were around the house, would have been back in Winnipeg when I guess I was about 10 years old, 11, 12 years old. The first records I remember hearing were, well, I heard the Mission Impossible theme on television, and that did my head in because it's just so great, right? And I, I noticed the name of the guy who did it, which is 
I guess maybe the first time I ever registered the person who was responsible for a piece of music. So Lalo Schifrin, you could see that name on the television, and that was great. But I never had, indeed I never heard, the Mission Impossible album until many years later, which is odd because there was a lot of copies sold. But a friend of mine, when I was living in Winnipeg, had a copy of Mannix, which was another Lalo Schifrin album, another TV soundtrack, and it was great, and it was jazz. Schifrin is a jazz guy, and that was a jazz album. It was kind of a a breezy, sunny, uh, West Coast kind of semi-big band album. So I heard that at a very early age, and I also... Amongst the first records I ever bought were Bond, James Bond soundtracks, the original Casino Royale, which is this smoking Burt Bacharach score with the most wonderful uh, Dusty Springfield song on it, The Look of Love. It's a Bacharach David song sung by Dusty, and it to this day is one of my favorite songs. So that's had a quite a, quite a, a healthy longevity in my life. Also, the, the John Barry score for Thunderball, I had a record of that, a cutout, if it, anybody knows what a cutout is, it's a cheap is a remaindered album. And Barry, although his Bond scores weren't straight ahead jazz, were very jazz influenced and very influenced by the big band sound of uh, some of Stan Kenton's arrangers. So even though I wasn't really aware that I was being um, uh, kind of programmed for jazz, acclimatized to jazz, that I guess was what was happening. As you mentioned, I spent my adolescence in England. By that time, I discovered Steely Dan by by way of my older brother James. And the Steely Dan albums, although they probably s- sit under the rock and pop category, are definitely highly, highly jazz in- influence. So there again, that was one of my gateway drugs. But I guess yeah, I'd have to say Lalo Schifrin, because when I started buying his stuff, a lot of his records were jazz, and then I started looking at other stuff in the jazz section. Film score style, is that still your favorite type of jazz? No, not at all. I, I would say that hard bops, which is like small combo, usually like a quartet or quintet, sometimes a sextet if you want to get exciting. So I'd say small combo hard bop from the late 50s and early 60s would be my favorite form of jazz. But I'm, I have Catholic taste. I, I do like big band jazz. I even like vocalists. And there is a huge overlap between, in my personal kind of uh, pantheon, between jazz music and film music. And I, I always love the things that sit at that intersection. So jazz music, film scores, I've recently had a big, big time uh, rock and blues revival. So th- there's a lot of that happening. So recently I've been playing the hell out of The Doors, Dr. John the Night Tripper, Early Stones, and some great... Uh, Bluesman Lightning Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, Big Bull Brunsey, Muddy Waters, to name a few. Perhaps later on I can tell you why that that particular uh, renaissance came about. You don't have to wait. Yeah, okay, so um, I was sitting where I'm sitting now, in front of my stereo, carefully positioned so I'm in the sweet spot between my quad electrostatic speakers, and the telephone rings, and I picked up the phone, and a lot of my favorite stories begin with a phone call. And this was a guy who used to be my yoga teacher. Like I still, I've done yoga now for about 20 years, but for the last 10 years or so, I've just done it at home. But back when I was going to the ashram, for that is what it's called, I I had a yoga teacher and we remained friendly. And he got in touch because through, I believe, an uncle of his, he'd inherited a bunch of blues albums. And he rang me up and he said, are you interested in this stuff? It's on vinyl. And I said, is the bear Catholic? (laughs) 
And so he came over with his stack of, um, and there was some fantastic stuff. There was like a this original pressing of, of a Lightning Hopkins album. There's some and some really quite valuable items there, and it was great, great stuff. A lot of English and French pressings, not the original American ones, which in many cases would have been phenomenally like original chess pressings. If some of these would have been a real score, but never mind that. That just the music, the the authenticity, and the purity of the music really did my head in. I'd listened to a lot of blues, of course, and I once collected this, uh, there was something called the Blues Collection, which was what they call a part work. Every week they'd issue a CD in a magazine. That kind of killed my love of the blues, but you have to remember, that was on CD, this is on vinyl. You can't really make a judgment, I believe, about music until you've heard it from a really good recording. And a lot of things that I've heard on CD and dismissed, I've then heard on vinyl and thought, actually, there's, there is something here that was not immediately evident in the digital version. Suddenly, the blues was back on my agenda. And as soon as I started listening to the blues, that, in my own head, formed an association with the Rolling Stones, the, the kind of earlier, more authentic Stones, up to the, about the point where Mick Taylor left uh, as their lead guitarist. They were always a love of mine when I was a kid. Listening to the blues suddenly made me, gave me a craving to go back to these early Stones albums. And I, I'm very glad I did. You know, stuff like, I'm talking about stuff like Beggar's Banquet, let it bleed and the much maligned satanic majesty's request which i think is a masterpiece which gives sergeant peppers a run for its money there are other opinions available about that though okay so your discerning ear for uh, sound was that developed as part of working for hi-fi news so what happened was i worked on doctor who like i said for the bbc for three years then Doctor Who was cancelled. <laughs> My work was so successful, the show was cancelled. No, that's, that's, we were doing great work, but the knives were out for Doctor Who. It's hard to believe now because the show's so popular, but this, it was in eclipse at this time. So that ended, and I moved on to another show, which was this hospital drama. And the producer of that was kind of, uh, I have nothing good to say about him. <laughs> and I ended up leaving the BBC. I needed a job, obviously. I needed to pay my bills. And a friend, Ken Kessler, a famed hi-fi journalist, very nice man, set me up with a job on a... It wasn't initially on a hi-fi magazine. It was a, on a magazine that was in the same office as a hi-fi magazine. Then I moved on to the hi-fi magazine, which at that point was Hi-Fi Choice at Dennis Publishing. And then I, uh, I had a falling out with them. This sounds like I'm a really difficult character, right? But anyway, so I told them to take their job and shove it. And then I got a job on Hi-Fi News, which is a much better... Uh, Hi-Fi Choice was a good magazine, but Hi-Fi News was better. And it was much purer kind of audiophile magazine. I'd already begun to understand the importance of sound quality and the importance of vinyl when I was at Hi-Fi Choice. But the thing that... Hi-Fi News and Record Review, to give its full name, the thing that that magazine did to open my ears or open my eyes was I discovered that, Jim, everything old sounds better than anything new. So vinyl is better than CDs. But more than that, it turns out that valve amps are better than transistor amps. And these old quad speakers, which are about what I'm doing the math now, God, they're about over 60 years old are better than modern speakers, and so on. So Hi-Fi News really equipped me with that particular viewpoint, which I'm willing to defend. Anybody who doesn't agree with me should come over and have a listen to my Hi-Fi, and I'll make them a very nice meal too. <laughs> yeah, there's an offer. So my discerning ear developed just through being exposed to it, but even then, it wasn't a done deal. When I left Hi-Fi News, 
Did I leave under a cloud there? No, I just got a better job <laughs> working for a classical music magazine. And I just listened to CDs for years. But what happened, there was a kind of road to Damascus moment where I was looking for a soundtrack uh, and it was Ennio Morricone's score to the, the Thing, which is a very interesting film score. And I'm a huge Morricone fan, by the by. The CD for that had just gone out of print and it was starting to command silly money. So I scampered around town visiting any store that was likely to have a copy of it. And I went to this dedicated soundtrack store, which is no longer there. Uh, near Bloomsbury in London. And they were in the process of getting rid of all their vinyl. They were just selling off all their albums for like about two pounds each. I just went nuts. I bought bags and bags of these, and then I went back again and again, picking over the carcass, right? And so I ended up, I guess, with at least 100 records. What's not to love? I love film music. This, these were great scores and unbeatably cheap. And my turntable, which is this gorgeous Garrard 303 turntable, I think I just made a huge faux pas and called a 301 the 303, but we'll check that later. Anyway, classic vintage Garrard turntable from the 1958 uh, had been lying there unused and gathering dust, not literally because it's got a Perspex cover, but the Perspex cover had been gathering dust probably for several years and I'd just been listening to CD. But being a thrifty chap and having spent money on, on, on like dozens and dozens of these cheap records, I had to play them. It was almost instant. Uh, as soon as I began listening to LPs, the difference in sound quality is irrefutable and obvious. And it wasn't uh, a discovery I was looking for particularly. It was just, just so absolutely clear. And since then, there's been no looking back. I still listen to CDs, especially when I'm busy, too busy to get up and turn a record over every 15 or 20 minutes. But there's no contest. You know, there's just no contest in, in terms of the sound quality. For those CD lovers, you can send your complaints to Andrew Carmel. No, I, I agree with you. I'd like to get on to the next sort of stage here and talk about the Vinyl Detective series. Five books. Is there a sixth on the way? There is a sixth book, which I should have been writing today, uh, but I will be writing tomorrow, I promise. And it's going quite well at the moment. It, the sixth one is The Vinyl Detective Goes Scandy Noir, oh, if people know what that means. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Each book in the series deals with a different genre of music, or at yeah. least it does so far. And this one is Swedish, sorry, Scandinavian death metal or black metal. Like the, certain subgenres of very heavy rock that come from Scandinavia. That's the sort of linchpin or MacGuffin in this particular novel. Were you just sitting at home one day and thought, geez, I like detective stories, I like music, I'm just going to mash these two things together and come up with this brainwave. How did, how did uh, well, the vinyl... Well, yes, that, that happened, but it was, it was crucial to know the thing before that. So if we scroll back to Doctor Who, I met a guy, I hired this guy, I discovered a really talented writer called Ben Aronovich, and we did great work together on Doctor Who. I say that in all modesty. I mean, we really did, just did fantastic work. But then... Both of us were kind of canned by television. Ben, ben hung on to the, the bucking bronco a little longer than I did, but we both found ourselves on the outside. And Ben, who's an unparalleled scriptwriter, TV scriptwriter of such brilliance, couldn't get arrested. So he decided, because he was fond of earning a living, that he would try writing novels. He did this with such success that he, he has now sold two million copies of, of his series of books, which are called the Rivers of London series. They're sort of a supernatural policier. They're police procedurals with a healthy dose of supernatural magic in them. I watched Ben go from working in a bookshop and having to get up at five in the morning to, to write his novel to being on the bestseller list. And I said, Ben, 
what's the trick? Because I had written books on and off, mostly spin-off novels. I, I wrote a, a, a number of Doctor Who spin-offs, not, not uh, surprisingly, and also one from the 60s TV series The Prisoner. And also a sort of science fiction kind of thriller novel called The Wise, but none of them had clicked and none of them, I never felt I got it right. So I said, what's the trick to writing a really successful novel, Ben? And he said, well, write about what you really love. Don't try and work out what the marketplace wants, which is something that I've been guilty of doing. I'd think, oh, what, what, what would a bestseller look like and try and write that? He said, don't do that. Just write about what you genuinely love. And this comes at this point, we come to your extremely lucidly and shrewdly phrased question. So I was, I was thinking, oh, well, I love crime novels and I love record collecting. And that's, so that's how The Vinyl Detective came about. Did you know? CFUV welcomes local and touring musicians into our studios. Every Friday. Every Friday. On Basement Closet Sessions. Want to hear the raw cut? We have archived our live performances on our band camp page. At cfuv.bandcamp.com. Hear bands you love. Artists you never heard of. Artists you never heard of. And your next musical crush. Visit cfuv.ca for more info. Had you always planned to write a book where the hero has no name? Like, it's never no mentioned? No, not at all. Um, one of the things that was so appealing about Ben's books is that they're written in this dry, first-person, sardonic, comic way. And so I, I've written books in the third person uh, and, in, and, and, all, and in the first person. I thought I'd try this one in the first person, my first final detective novel. So I just started writing it. And when you write a book where you're talking about me, I did this, I did that, there's no need for a description of the character. And there's not really any need for his name unless somebody, you know, says it to him. And I was quite deep into the novel before I realized that I hadn't given him, his, given him a name. Because I wasn't thinking about things like names. I was thinking about things like attitude, what that, how this guy would see the world and, and the way he'd behave and what his world was like. I got deep into the book without even having thought about his name. And I thought, you know what, it has worked this far. I think I'm just going to go with it. I also have to say that I was well aware that Dashiell Hammett had uh, the great, great crime novelist, Dashiell Hammett, best known for The Thin Man and The Maltese Falcon, had written a series of stories and a, a novel or two about a, a character who had no name. He was just called The Continental Op, which means operator. In other words, a detective, private detective. So The Continental Op had no name, and that had never done him any harm. There are two novels. I was just checking my memory banks. Red Harvest and The Dane Curse. And anybody who hasn't read Red Harvest, that's a great, great book. So I knew he'd done that, Hammett had done that, and I also knew that Len Dayton, who wrote a series of terrific spy novels in the early 60s, starting with The Epcrest File, had created a spy with no name. He was, he was sort of known as the nameless operative rather than operator. So I knew that there were honorable antecedents, and I, I knew that there's also a proof of principle for writing books for a character who didn't have a name. It's fun when we, when you when I when I talk to people who read them and we bring up featured character we kind of look for a name and it's not there and we kind of giggle. 
I thought the series, when I started reading them, could get stale if you spend a lot of time just jazz, jazz, jazz. But it's, uh, the series has stayed fresh because there are different places, different people, and certainly different styles of music. Again, you're conscious of that? I don't rule out the, at all the possibility of going back you know, to, to genres and exploring them from a different angle. For instance, the first book was sort of about straight ahead jazz. Then around about book three, I wrote about, which is called Victory Disc, I wrote about the swing music, which was dominant during World War II. And that is essentially jazz, a different kind of jazz. So, but it's so different. And, and as you say, the settings and characters are very different each time. And I, I think that it will remain fresh. And then there's no shortage of genres of music. You know, I, I look forward to the Western swing novel <laughs> somewhere down the line. So do I. The important thing where I did feel that I needed to shake it up a bit is that the books, the first, certainly the first three or four books, tended to be about the search for a rare record. I didn't want that to become a stricture or a straitjacket. The books are now always going to be, remain set in this world, but it, the story doesn't have to be from beginning to the end about the search for a particular holy grail on vinyl. So, Andrew, you talk about uh, things you love, like record collecting and music, and, and the other thing that comes out in the vinyl detectives that I feel very close to is I've spent some time in London, and I'm delighted to see that you write about the city with the kind of love and passion for being a Londoner that, that I feel th goes throughout all your books. Like you're thinking like Barnes and the Bull's Head and the charity shop, uh, they all really add to the uh, flavor of the story. Well, it began as low-hanging fruit. I gave the guy, the protagonist, the nameless hero, a flat, very like my little house. Um, I didn't give him both, both floors of it, which I regret. <sighs> to this day. So there's going to be a story in which they buy the upstairs flat and, and reconvert it into a split level just because I keep wanting him to go upstairs, <laughs> you know, because I go upstairs or the cats to go upstairs because my cat goes upstairs. So I based his environment very closely on my own. And, and importantly, if you're a hi-fi, I based his hi-fi exactly on my own and his, his taste in music. There are differences. He, he's, he drinks coffee. I don't drink coffee because I'd jump out of my skin. But we both live in southwest London. And not, not least because when I write about an, uh, an environment, I want to write with a feeling of, of reality and to give it a flavor of authenticity. So if I'm writing about my what certain London, young Londoners would call my ends, which means my neighborhood, my part of town, then I'm confident about that and I know that I can create a realistic world. We do go to other places, and they're usually fairly scrupulously researched. Sometimes uh, I, I will resort to the internet. Sometimes I will just invent a place. In the uh, fourth final detective novel, which is called Flipback, I invented an island, which was kind of my own take on Lindisfarne, the holy island. I found that that was really fun and really freeing. For authenticity, you don't necessarily have to have a one-to-one -one relationship with reality. You just have to have that flavor of it. But I know what you mean about London, because uh, I do love this city. And it's, it's, it's an exciting city and fun to write about. So it is one of the characters in the stories. Never being one to sit still. You've taken now to writing for the stage and have a weekly Zoom reading of scripts you've written. And I'll confess here that it has been part of my pandemic survival kit. 
I'm very happy to have helped. <laughs> I, I just wonder, has it uh, been the same for you and the great actors that you have every Oh, my week? God. I can't tell you what a, what a, how exciting and what a social... Um, I suppose what I'm saying is it's the opposite of isolation. It's a wonderful social asset, this. But just to explain where that came from, although I always wanted to be a novelist, I did have a, a love of and a fascination with script writing in all its forms. Like I would get books. I mean, one of my earliest paperbacks I remember having was the screenplay for Butch Casting the Sundance Kid by William Goldman, which oddly enough was published and was a bestseller. Usually what they do in a situation like that with a hit movie was, would be to novelize it, to take the script and have some, often just some ghostwriter, you know, hack out a prose version of it. But in this case, it actually published the screenplay with the dialogue, you know, because the dialogue was just virtuosic. And I suppose that was one of the things that gave me a love of, of screenwriting. There was also a paperback published of the screenplay to Judge Roy Bean by John Milius, right. which was not a memorable movie, but was a great, great script. And then I read stage plays, and the, the stage play that I most fell in love with, I suppose I might have seen it on TV before I read it, was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee. That was just a classic. I remember recently hearing an interview with Aaron Sorkin, one of my screenwriting heroes, and he was talking about how he fell in love with dialogue and language through Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So I'm, I'm not alone in that. So I'd always been interested in both screenplays and stage plays. So when I was doing my postgrad at the University of Kent in Canterbury, I thought I had access to the drama department there. So I thought it's time for me to write a stage play. And I did. And I put it on, I cast it and I directed it, which is a mistake I'll never make again, by which I mean, writing is a lot of fun. It's often hard work, but it's not the kind of hard work that directing is. Because I remember standing there in the middle of the theater at the Gilbankian, and I was surrounded by people, every single one of whom had a question for the director. And I was just like, beam me out of here, Scotty. A good director is essential. I will always look for somebody who isn't me to be my director. So I loved writing for the stage. I enjoyed that, that process. And I had a couple of plays on what they call the London Fringe, which are like the little theatres away from the main West End. Over the years, I've had about three productions on. In recent times, just before, I mean, there's millions of people who've got a story like this. Just before the pandemic hit, we had something planned. And what we had planned is a production of a play of mine called Partner in the Firm, which is a comedy. We'd booked the theater and I had a director, a very good director and a very good producer. We'd paid like a grand deposit, a thousand pound deposit on the theater. The play was due to start that summer, you know, that first summer when the pandemic had everything shut down. While we were unable to go ahead with the play, I was still doing play readings because my process was always to write a play and then to hear it read by actors. And what I'd do is I'd invite them over to my house. This was back in the days when you could do such a thing. And I'd have a bunch of very talented actors sit around my dining room table, read the play. Then afterwards, I'd give them a meal because that's the least you can do for actors if they're reading your words. We'd been doing that on a regular basis. And then when the world locked down, that kind of segued into doing it online. And in fact, one of my actresses said, you know, uh, you're planning to do this reading on Skype. Why don't you look into something called Zoom, which sort of shows at what point in history this was. So, yes, for over a year now, every week we've been having play readings. OK, we, we had Christmas off, but virtually every week we've been having play readings on Thursday. So we call it Thursday Theatre. It was a huge incentive for me not just to hear my existing plays written, but to, but to write new ones. And it's been an amazing 
process of discovering new talent because sometimes an actor isn't available, they recommend somebody else or, or, and they bring new people into the fold. So as I think you yourself have discovered, there's this wonderful group of actors I've got who are working with me on a regular basis now. Yeah, they're terrific. And does this have anything to do with the pandemic? You're now doing uh, radio, uh, community radio. That has got really not so much to do with the pandemic. It could have happened any time. It's got everything to do with social media. And again, Doctor Who is the gift that keeps on giving. It has brought many fine things my way, uh, including money. I, I, you know, I never say no to sums of money, like going to conventions and stuff. So it's, it's enabled me to travel. Or I was going to say all over the world, but that's a bit grandiose, mostly in North America and Europe too. It's also brought me many friends, like people I never would otherwise have met have approached me over the, you know, it used to be Facebook, now it's mostly Twitter, and they've got to know me and I've got to know them, and then I've met them in the real world. Well, what happened uh, a few months ago was that someone approached me on Twitter, and as you say, they, they had a community radio station, they were just setting up Medway Pride Radio. Medway is sort of a river estuary in Kent, so it's that sort of area. So Shay Coffey got in touch with me. And she wanted to interview me because she knew me through Doctor Who, as many people do, but also through The Vinyl Detective. So I was invited onto her Sunday show. Shay runs the radio station and has sort of chosen the, the plum shows for herself, of course. So she interviewed me and that went down very well. And it was all very nice. And then a few weeks pass and she got in touch with me and said, how, how would you like to have your own jazz show <laughs> on our radio station again is is a bare catholic so the answer was very much yes very very much yes i'd always had a dream of being a jazz dj i I'd sort of imagined it taking place late at night and i suppose it could be because i, I pre-record the shows so i could pre-record them anytime i want if and when i go out live it's actually 2 p.m on sundays okay which reminds me of the cover of the donald fagan album where the uh, DJ is sitting there with his turntable and his cigarettes. Uh, the Nightfly is yeah. exactly like that. And the funny thing is, I was thinking of that, of that album just a moment ago while we were talking, because I was saying how I'd base my character on myself. In The Nightfly, in the liner notes for that, he says it's about the adventures of a young man of approximately his age, height, and shoe size, I think he says, or yeah. his age, build, and shoe size. So that's that was sort of what my character was, too. But The Nightfly is a fine album, and, and that's that's the way, sand cigarettes, that's the kind of way I'd like to imagine myself as a DJ. A couple quick questions here. There's no wrong answers, uh, and I think the answers are pretty obvious when I, uh, since we started this conversation cats or dogs i love both and i grew up with dogs but then i had a girlfriend who was a cat person and i i really like cat cats are low maintenance when i live in the country because i intend to get a house in the country at some point then dogs will be added to the equation but at the moment the answer is totally cats all right uh analog or digital Oh, well, that's an even more obvious one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With the following proviso, digital is very useful for some things. When I got the gig as a DJ on Medway Pride Radio, I bought myself a, 
a ripper, a little machine to rip CDs. Now, I could record stuff off vinyl, but it would be a Byzantine process. The thing about the, the CD ripper is I just put a CD into this drive, plug it into my computer. It goes onto the hard drive on my computer and it identifies the tracks, the artist, the title, everything, so that when we broadcast it, the proper person can be remunerated for using their their music so in that regard i've got to say digital is really helpful but if i'm just listening for pleasure there's no competition i remember john mellencamp talking about how they took an original vinyl copy of, of a beatles album and played a day in the life and they they put it up against like i think it was an mp3 of it and he said it didn't even sound like the same song so i i'm on that page of the hymn book jim all right Okay, this is, uh, I'm curious about this one. Do you own more than one copy of Kind of Blue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I had a copy, somebody gave me a copy, I think, from my, or I bought one in the 70s. And so I don't want to get rid of that because it has a deep sentimental attachment for me, to me, and for me. And I picked up other copies over the years, which I'm a little bit, I quite like, you know, I've got an attachment to them. But then... Uh, one day, the thing about vinyl is you don't just want a record on vinyl, you want the original pressing. No, believe me, you do, because it always sounds better. It's from a kind of a soulless collecting point of view. You could understand why somebody wants a first edition or a first pressing, first pressing. But I'm not just talking about that sort of collector's compulsion. Actually, first pressings or early pressings do sound better than later ones, and they're more likely to sound like what happened in the recording studio. So I went hunting for the uh, the Great White Whale of jazz on vinyl, which was an original pressing of Kind of Blue. And if you want to really go down the rabbit hole, you don't just want a first or early pressing. You want a, a demo pressing, a DJ pressing, because the first records to come off the stampers are promo or sample copies and they usually they often have a white label and they get sent out to DJs and so you you want one of those because it's likely to be even higher quality than a normal first pressing I'm just waking up slow. it doesn't matter if you're just waking up or crawling home from the best damn Thursday night of your life blues in the morning has enough zombie voodoo gree gree to last you through the whole weekend Join Jim for two hours of blues in all its forms, Friday between 9 and 11 a.m., with a special emphasis on Canadian music. And remember, support live music. <laughs> You're tuned in to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can always tune in online at cfuv.ca. We might not be live in the studio these days, but we're putting together new content for you all the same, because we're thinking about you. All of you. CFUV listeners are healthcare workers. They're first responders. They're grocery store clerks and farmers keeping us fed. They're parents at home with kids jumping off the walls. They're mail carriers and housebound seniors. They're service providers on the front lines taking care of our most vulnerable. You are part of the CFUV family and you're in our thoughts these days more than ever. Thank you for keeping our communities and yourselves safe and well.
is you asked if I have more than one copy of Kind of Blue. So I actually tracked down. Uh, I found a guy on eBay whose dad had been a DJ, and I lucked out in an auction because these records go for stratospheric prices. I don't think he was too pleased, but I got it for a reasonable price, which was still a few hundred bucks. So I had my copy of a promo DJ copy of Kind of Blue. Then I bought a really expensive record cleaning machine, and I cleaned it in that, and it came out, and it had been trashed. So, so that was not no. good. Yeah, yeah. So I I did what any um, right-thinking young man would do. I, I dusted myself off, and I, I got up again, and I went out, and I found another promo pressing of Kind of Blue. And then one day, I suddenly thought, you know what? It's really weird that that record-cleaning machine totaled that record and never harmed any other. It was almost like a, you know, a diabolical thing. And I thought... Hang on a sec. And I went back to the record. What I thought was um, a deep kind of uh, score across the surface of the vinyl was in fact just a smear of crud. Somehow this record cleaning machine had come across a, a bit of crud and had smeared it across the playing surface and it had sounded like an abrasion. So I just all I did was clean it again. So I've got two copies of the original promo pressing oh, of why? Kind of Blue. In answer to your question, that's that's why I've got at least two copies of Kind of Blue. Uh, and uh, when you come over, we must play it for you because it it's uh, whatever on on digital on anything, whatever format you've got it on, that is a hypnotically beautiful album, and I'd oh, love yeah. to play it for you. Yeah. I would love to come and have a meal and uh, listen to it. One final question. Did you make that story up about the stone goats? I know exactly what you're referring to. Uh, I know which book it is. But was it, did I say the goats were actually stone? No, I think they just, they looked stone, didn't they? I think yeah. you gave the impression they were, in, they were stone. Yeah, well, so what that was is uh, in this particular book, which is called Low Action, which is book five, which is the punk rock book. What happens is our detective gets involved in the search for a rare record. And he becomes embroiled with this all-girl punk band who, in their heyday, were an all-girl punk band. But this is like decades later, right? And one of them uh, owns a little goat farm, and she needs the money to put it on a, a viable commercial footing. So they have a benefit concert for her, and they call it Goat Aid. And one of my heroes, who's a guy called Tinkler, who's sort of the irascible class clown, does the t-shirts for the concert. And he, of course, because he's a total stoner himself, his goat t-shirts feature a cartoon of a goat with kind of spiral eyes smoking a blunt. So that, that's, that's where the stoned goats came into it, yeah. Okay, anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for taking this time with us. Uh, thank you for taking some time away from writing the novel, but get back to it. And, I will, I will, uh, thank you. We'll be in touch soon. Please stay safe. Talk to you soon.